Sabrina Little. Welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. One of the things that we talk a fair bit about on this pod is the merging of unique, separate disciplines or what we do for work alongside running. And I feel like you're a great example of this with your I Run Far column. You are doing that with philosophy and our sport. Can you talk about what interested you in merging those two worlds? Yeah. So the kind of philosophy that I do, I'm a virtue ethicist. And so I talk about how to um, put on good making features of a human life. And I realized that what I was doing as an athlete was those very things, right? So I was practicing courage. I was practicing perseverance. I was practicing humility and, and things like that on a regular basis in my sneakers. And, um, just knowing that, you know, those are the kinds of conversations that I was having in my work. It, it naturally lended itself to examine my own running. Um, and I realized that as an athlete, I was being chastised and challenged by um, the things that I was learning about in philosophy. Like, what does it mean to live a good life? What is suffering? Like, what's the nature of suffering? Why do we voluntarily suffer? Um, what does that add to a life? And so that was making my, it was enriching my, my running life. Um, and so I just started having conversations with other people and, and realizing that, you know, other people had the same kinds of concerns and questions. And, and so it kind of grew from there. And I was, I've been really thankful for the opportunity that I run far has given me to just, um, think out loud. Super cool. You said a lot of interesting stuff there. One, one bit was around how much you've learned through our sport about what it means to suffer, what it means to live the good life. Can you identify a few examples for the audience? Yeah, it's funny. I think that there's, we're revisiting some of these things. I don't know if in you've noticed, but in the past couple of weeks, I've seen a lot more athletes um, kind of self-examining online and, and saying things like, I realize that I've been pushing too hard or I need to incorporate more rest or, I've realized that I've been in uh, like the position of always being a pusher and needing to like think about my life in broader terms in the sport. So I think these are like when you are pushing your limits as an athlete, I think there's a kind of self-reflection that is generated just because you're coming against your limits and you're realizing like, well, I can't like there are human limits, like part of what it means to be a human is to have like the constraints of nature on us and the constraints of community and trying to figure out like how to balance all things together. Like we're not performance robots. Um, and so I think we have these questions, but at the same time, often in endurance sports, we come against this very weird, I think naive and a bit immature rhetoric around things like no pain, no gain and pain is weakness leaving the body and like no rest days like go 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 like all of this stuff that's decidedly not human and it's not productive for athletics and it's not productive for like a rich life or even just like having an athletic life that continues beyond a couple of years like you just can't pound your body into like pulverize it like I don't know what the good of that is so yeah, I mean, I feel like there are always conversations that are being had about like where suffering fits in and when is it edifying? 
why is it that sometimes we choose like certain kinds of suffering? Like, why do I go out and run a hundred miles when I could sit on the couch? Like, where am I growing in that? Like, what's the point? Um, I think that those kinds of conversations naturally arise. And so I try to draw in like the ancients, the, the classical tradition and thinking about these things, because we're not the first to have these questions. There's a whole tradition of inquiry that has stemmed for thousands of years where people investigated these questions about the good life and suffering and so forth. You mentioned the, the camp in our world of people who put constant suffering on a pedestal. Is that the same thing as stoicism in your mind, or has stoicism been uh, misinterpreted or at least taken to an extreme in our sport? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's definitely a sort of pop momentum around stoicism at the moment. And stoicism doesn't seek out suffering, but it just kind of explains away like the experience of it. Like an, maybe another way of saying it is like you try to deny that the suffering is happening because you know that the only things you can really control are your mind and your like freedom of will. And so you you develop this kind of diffident posture toward it. Like it's not even happening. It's not, uh, yeah, like it's not taking place. Um, but there's a way in which as an athlete, like so you can take on that mindset and think like, well, the things that I can control are um, like how I walk through this hard thing. And also like you're encountering, like your body is experiencing those things. So you come against like, there's a weird stoicism is like maybe a helpful thing up to a point. People tend to like really grasp onto stoicism in times of plague, which makes sense right now in a time of plague. Like there's so much out of our control and then we try to control just our minds. Um, but also like there are signs of that suffering in our bodies. Like you can do this sort of self-denial dance in, in your mind toward like, I'm not being affected by this. And at the end of the day, if you are just like pushing through the really hard thing, even if you're not confronting it or you're like putting it in a comfortable place, mentally speaking, your body feels it, right? Mm. Like you can't absorb limitless strain. To some extent, stoicism or some form of it is having its day in our community. I also feel like there's the Brad Stilberg, Steve Magnus camp out there of, you know, balance, et cetera. If you could put your finger on the pulse of the community and maybe make, I don't want to say make decisions for people, but if you could see a certain type of philosophy rise up and, and have its heyday, what would it be right now? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I certainly hear people talk about like if they're going to cite philosophy, they're probably saying something about stoicism. Um, but I think, I don't know, like I do think, well, one thing that often arises in, um, in the athletic community is this sort of um, like treating a kind of like platonic idea, like <laughs> of idealism of like your body is the lesser thing and so you just discipline it into submission and then like I don't know as though you yourself are like separable from your embodiment in that way so I see that sometimes 
I also sometimes see I'm an Aristotelian um, <laughs> philosophically, so I think that I think of the emotions as like something they're supposed to be directed at their proper object, and they have their place. It's like anger has its place, but it's supposed to be directed at the right things and the right times and the right ways. And I do see a natural like part of training yourself as a distance runner is training your emotions so that you're responding well. Like if you come through aid stations and you're tantruming and you can't control your emotions and they're just like running the show, like then like emotional growth is like part of the process of becoming a like a reliable runner. And and so I do see like in practice, we're probably a little bit Aristotelian in that way. Mm. Um, but I don't think there's like one unified thing. Um, but yeah, like if I see ever see a philosophical quote online, it's, it's usually the Stoics. Yeah. Right on. One more question I, I want to ask you before uh, we get into this recent column you wrote about what it means to be a fan in our sport. I'm curious, would you say to this point, your academic background or your running background has had a bigger influence on what your core philosophy is? Oh my goodness. Um, that's a really good question. Um I mean, it, it, the reason it's a really hard question is that I think of running as being so much a part of my education, right? So like alongside my graduate studies every day, I would, you know, I'd go out, I'd do hill repeats and, uh, and tempo runs and long runs. And I was training and refining and growing and being challenged in ways that I found kind of like complementary to the work that I was doing in a classroom setting. Um, I do think that being a philosopher and specifically a virtuous ethicist, I think that um, that work has given me a vocabulary to understand my running better. Um, like it gives me words to understand my defects and things. So, so I don't want to say that one is primary. I think like both are inescapably me and, and both enrich, enrich the other. An example is, do you want an example? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the longest time when I started ultra running, I thought that I just wasn't very good at long runs, physically speaking. And so I always thought like, well, I just need to do more work. I need to invest more time in this, uh, more time on feet. And so I would, I would just have that sense, like, oh, I'm not very good at this. But then when I was studying <laughs> in virtue ethics, I learned of this vice and it's called Akedia. And Akedia, like another common word for it is sloth. And when we think of sloth in our culture, we think of like the slow animal, like the metabolically arrested animal that just kind of lays there and is super lazy and doesn't rise to challenges. But there's actually a second manifestation of sloth, which is this sort of internal busyness, um, this kind of frenetic energy where you can't stay in place. You just want to flit off and do literally anything else. Um, and that's what I was experiencing on runs and my fitness was fine, but I just had a really hard time doing that work of internally staying. And so once I acquired the vocabulary, it's like concepts are like spectacles. Like it gave me 
um, new eyes. It, it gave me a new way of seeing like ways in which I was failing as an athlete. And so having that kind of language available, um, is like, it's like a new set of tools. It's like a new set of resources to, to better understand myself as an athlete. Cause it wasn't just my fitness. That was the problem. Like I had this character defect that I needed to address directly. I love that answer. And I can totally echo your, your sentiment around gaining the vocabulary for a particular area of life. My example is much less exciting and meaningful than yours, but I've recently I have a friend who does shoe reviews and I'm helping him out with those. I knew nothing about shoes heading into it. And now I understand terms like midsole and heel cup and upper toe box, all that kind of stuff. And I just feel like I have this whole other added component to my trail running arsenal. And it's awesome in my small little world. Yeah, I Um, love it. I want to move on to this article that you, or this column you wrote in I Run Far last month. Um, And I will say like, as I'm scrolling social media, I'm always trying to look for something fresh, an idea I've never considered this, like all the the bells and whistles were going off when I, when I saw this. You wrote about what good conduct might look like for fans of trail and ultra running. And we'll certainly talk in depth about various parts of it for folks that have not read it yet. But first, I'm curious, um, what prompted you to write it? What is, what's the why now for this particular column, for this uh, article? It's a couple things. One, I, I have like an ongoing list of, of topics that I return to <laughs> that I intend to write about. And so it's something that I've been stewing about for a while, but just kind of in light of the beginning of the year, there are lots of sponsorship changes going on and different, you know, like just talking to my friends about like incentive structures built into contracts and things and what they're being rewarded for. It's really interesting. Like I, I just started to think about the ways in which my own character had been shaped and my habits of attention had been shaped as an athlete because of the terms of my contract, right? Cause what is reinforced in your contract is what you learn to pay attention to. Mm. And so if you're rein- being reinforced in terms of things like, um, posting a lot on social media, um, like specifically pictures and things like that, or just performances, you tend to think of yourself as a person as having value only with respect to those things. And so I was reflecting back on my previous contract language and seeing the ways in which it had shaped me. But then I just kind of like in, in considering that, I mean, how many people are impacted by the terms of their contracts. I like I was thinking more broadly about, well, what is the impact of these contracts on other people? Um, what are we being made to value in the culture of sport? Do some of the terms of our contracts and the way in which we present ourselves as athletes undermine some of the goods of the community? Because I think there are a lot of really great things that come from the sport. Um, and I was thinking about, well, what is a fan? Like, what are the good things that come from being a fan? Like, I think there are a lot of really great, great, um, like ways in which we're formed as people, like being exposed to the excellences of others. But also I think, again, certain things are being reinforced in our communities. Part of that is through contracts, but part of that is through the modes in which we encounter the athletes and so forth. So that's, that's where it came about. I was just typing there, scribbling down some notes. You said so many interesting things. First, I want to ask you in your own, I know it's personal to you, but 
when you became an athlete and you started looking at contracts and stuff, what did, what did you find yourself, uh, really paying attention to more than you thought you would? So I've been in the sport for a while and the early contracts were just in terms of performance. Um, and as like I've been in the community, there's more explicit language about posting online and things like that. Um, and it almost like, you know, in, in the history of philosophy, there's this whole tradition um, of seeming over being right so reputation over substance like that kind of concern like does it matter if you have a good character or does it matter that people think good things about you like that kind of thing and anytime i post on social media like that kind of it's a it's a kind of practice that turns your attention toward what other people think about you. And if you're not on guard about it or really careful about it, you start to think of yourself like it doesn't matter what you're doing, like your private thoughts, your feelings, except in so far as you're communicating some sort of image of yourself that appeals to whatever marketing person or like masses of people who happen to be in the online setting. So I've always been a little bit uneasy about social media. I'm on there, but I like, I, I don't feel like extremely comfortable in it because I'm just like always thinking about like the way in which my attention is turning and whether like the person that I'm portraying is who I am and should I always be, I don't know, should I have to position myself for an audience like yeah, just those kinds of questions. I certainly don't know the answer here, um, but I want to play devil's advocate for a second. You mentioned reputation over substance. That's I, I love that frame. Um, is is there any net pause? Is there any scenario where that is a positive? Where as an athlete, you totally turn yourself over to the crowd and <clears throat> you're relying on your perception with them, or is it fair to say that that's always a a, a bad thing, a negative thing, and you need to retain some semblance of identity in this whole process? Yeah, that's a really good and interesting question. Um, there's a sense in which um, being answerable to people offers a kind of accountability that if without eyes on you, then you're not thinking about, right? Um, and so say you're someone who says, yeah, rest is really important, but everyone on Strava sees every day that you're like, pounding yourself into the ground well there's a sense in which like being uh like having people see you like holds you to your own standards right so it maybe there's less room for hypocrisy there um but i also think like in general answering to the masses like you fall into things like the ad populum fallacy or bandwagon or things like that. Like in general, answering to the masses is not a means of maintaining your integrity as a person. Like having a few people who really know you, who share your values, um, like being answering answerable to a small number of people is always like preferable. Like, so there are a few people, I really care about what my husband, what my in-laws, what my family, like my brother in particular, my best friends think. Um, maybe I should care less about what thousands of strangers online say about me because, you know, they don't know me in that way. Um, I do think 
like, I don't want to be like social media, like throw it all away. Let's start like whatever. Like, I think there are good things that come from social media. Like, I think we're exposed to exemplars, people who are exceptional in certain ways and people who are looking at those platforms are exposed to like those, that way of being excellent. And you can even like, I don't know, so you see an excellent athlete and if they bring you along the journey, you have access not only to the fact that they're excellent, but their process in becoming so. Um, and I think that's really valuable and important. Um, I just worry about, I don't want to make decisions in my life on the basis of thousands of strangers that I don't know. Like I want to have a core group of people who will my good and I will theirs. And I want to be answerable to those people. Do you think, last question on this front, do you think it is accidental or intentional that as athletes we're being made to value sort of the far extreme of reputation right now? Accidental? No. Um, I mean, if you look at the ancients, um, like the way that athletes were always depicted was that their orientation was to fame. and, and there was this word that was employed, um, kleos, and kleos means glory, but it's about what others say about you. And so as long as people are saying things about you, then you have this kind of weight to you, you have this kind of glory, and there's like immortality in it, insofar as someone is speaking of you. And so athletes were described in these terms, like, way back when. So I don't think it's accidental. Um, I think like the professional athlete is a kind of performer. And so like, it really does like whether or not, like how they're performing, um, it's ordered to spectator, (laughs) the spectator. Um, yeah, I just think that there are some questions we should be asking about, well, what does that mean for my character? Um, are the ways in which like, okay, so if I'm answerable to people who are watching and engaged in the sport, well, what does that mean for my home life? It does that mean that I'm going to be a real basket case when I get home and I'm like still thinking about the eyes on me, like that kind of thing. I think there are character repercussions for, for being a person who's observed by others. Do you think that it is, because we're going to talk about good character, I think, in a second. Do you think it is, in the current era, relatively easy or relatively hard to maintain good character as an athlete with all of these things like social media around us, performance pressures, et cetera? What are your thoughts there? I think that for the contemporary athlete, I think vainglory is always a temptation, right? So carrying in an outsized way about what others say about you, um, caring about having your name, like be said, like, I think that's a temptation. I don't know if, um, I don't know if it's harder now than before, um, to maintain a good character in sport. Like, um, I kind of, you know, I kind of wonder about like the early days in ultra running where there was no attention and it was kind of like, well, if you have clear conscience in the way that you participate in sport, then 
that's great. Um, like, I wonder if media has made things a lot worse for us. But, you know, like humans thousands of years ago had vices, like humans today have vices. And so I think like asking questions about how your character is being shaped, your habits of attention and so forth. I think that's a question that is timeless and, and always important for us. I want to go more in depth on the article you wrote. There's four examples that you give, or at least four examples of, of what it would mean maybe to be not so good a fan. Uh, one of them is gossip. Another is rooting for vice, escapism, and anonymity. I want to cover at least a few of them in this conversation. Maybe we can talk about gossip first. And I think the first question I have here, uh, again, just to play devil's advocate, are there ever any scenarios where gossip makes sense where it can be a positive or will it always be one of those lower status things that as humans, we are tirelessly working to eliminate from society. Yeah, that's interesting. Gossip itself, I think has that negative connotation. Um, the way that gossip is defined is loose and idle speech. And so it's just not, uh, it's just being willing to talk outside the bounds of decorum Right. And so it's the nature of the things that you're saying and the way in which you're saying it. So what I don't want people to walk away thinking is that we shouldn't care about athletes. We shouldn't invest in them or like be excited about them or care about, you know, things that are off the field or off the trail or something like that. Like, I think that is part of being human. You get invested in other people's stories, but there's a way in which you can do it that is a bit untoward and that's like having no limits on the kind of access you demand um, or just using it as a kind of power over others or to make people feel small. Um, there's a way in which, I mean, just in ordinary life, like, you know when your speech is not being nice, right? Like when it's at odds with charity, when you're using it to cut people down, and I think that that happens a lot in the athletic context. Um, we love to cut down people who are like our big stars and we love to cut down the ones that we consider the, the foes, right? Like the, <laughs> the, the enemy ones. Uh, I mean, do we have many enemies in distance running? Probably <laughs> not. Uh, but you know what I mean? It makes me wonder because you, you talked, I think you gave the example of, you know, in the article about sort of the athletes not being in control of the information that gets divulged about like their private lives. And it made me wonder, and I think I'll throw this question to you, like how much of an athlete do we need access to in order to identify with them and root for them and be interested in them? And does that necessarily involve knowing the darker parts of their personality and their history? Yeah, that's funny. I think um, in part, it's being sensitive to the lines that the athlete themselves, like they draw, right? So some athletes are very comfortable, um, like sharing parts of their journey that they think, you know, um, are like an important part of their story. And they like, you know, athletes who talked about their past with like eating disorders or um, with overtraining or, you know, lack of balance in their lives or something like that. Like if they share it, that's different than trying to pry information. Um, 
so I think like part of it is being sensitive to that athlete and what they are, they feel comfortable like sharing about. Um, I do think like one of the cool things about social media is just like part of what we admire in an excellent person isn't just that they're excellent. Part of it is the process that it took to become so right. So if someone like put in a lot of work, like personal work or, um, like trained really hard and things like that, like having access to that kind of information is so powerful, right? Because it's not just like you're seeing the final product, it's giving you the steps on the ladder to get to that um, high point. And, and so I think it's really great when athletes do share that kind of information. But again, I don't like, I think the problem is when it's taking that information or sharing things that they're not comfortable with or speaking like the way that you use the information is a kind of like power play over them or something like that. Um, and I have seen some of that like online, like, you know, things that really did happen where an athlete is like not, wasn't acting above reproach in a certain way. And like seeing that information, like recycled again and again and again and creating a space where if that person wanted to grow, how are they supposed to like things that are online never go away. Like they don't have space to grow as a person and it's kind of like excluding them from the human community and not letting them back in. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I worry about. If you think about the media, um, people like myself, anybody that's in the business of telling, conveying athlete stories, asking questions, do you think that there should be any limiting or restricting of the types of questions that we ask, especially if we're trying to invite a deeper understanding of the athlete and maybe getting into uncomfortable territory? Is it? Do you think it's incumbent, for example, on the athlete to first demonstrate a willingness to start those conversations or is it okay for an interviewer to because I don't have a better word right now like pry yeah that's a good question um I think well oftentimes in interview settings like the you'll be asked is there anything you don't want to talk about and that's like a really great it gives the athlete permission to set those boundaries and I think that's really great um but I think like you know, the athlete can share as like, I don't, I can't personally think of anyone in the ultra running space. Who's an interviewer, who's really overstepped, you know, norms in that respect. Like most of the time when I see gossip, the gossip is just like loose lips online, um, rehearsing something bad that someone said, or like talking about them, but indirectly and everybody knows who it is. And, um, that kind of thing. Like I, I think that our running media does a really good job of like telling stories and being hospitable for the athlete to share what they want, whatever they're comfortable with. Quick break to give you another discount code. This episode is also brought to you by HVMN. HVMN are my choice for exogenous ketones. Exogenous ketones have been taking the pro cycling world by storm in recent years, used by many of the top teams at the Tour de France, for example, and I don't think it will be very long before they take ultra running by storm as well. 
I've been using them since learning about them at the Havelina 100 last year. They've become a part of my daily routine to support energy and focus, both for this podcast and for the training and racing I do. So yeah, for the remainder of 2023, my nutrition plan will be both high carbohydrate and high ketone. And for the latter, HVMN will be my product of choice. So if you're interested in trying them out yourself, use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout on their website for 20% off your next order. With that, let's get back to the conversation. There's another section of the article, and I think you you say it's it's your favorite section, which is uh, rooting for vice, how this can be an aspect of not being a great fan. And in one example, I think you talk about our tendency to root for these athletes that are you know, putting up really large volume, high workout weeks of training. They're racing heavy racing schedules. Effectively, they represent this inclination to, um, to be excessive, maybe to fly too close to the sun. And, and the question, I have a couple of questions here, but the first one is, should we assume that, and this is just to play devil's advocate as well, but like, should we assume that everybody that's an athlete in our sport wants balance and longevity? And is there something necessarily more valuable about balance and longevity in the sport as opposed to uh, a short time span of accomplishment and participation? Yeah. Oh my goodness. If you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I'd be like, no, like get the most out of yourself. Like it's so funny to be on the other side now where I'm like, Hey, maybe take a more balanced approach. Um, okay. So, right. I think that these kinds of like Faustian bargains are like trading short term, like getting short term gains for in, instead of long-term considerations. Like I, I think that they're really common in sport. Sometimes we excuse them like for like, say you're going to be in the Olympics. Well, you know, like that could be a peak moment that is really defining in your life. And so should you just take a balanced approach or should you go all in? Like, that's a question that an athlete needs to be able to answer for themselves. I just think that the kind of trade-offs that are being made should be explicit because I think a lot of times athletes enter the sport and they don't realize the kinds of bargains that they're making. Um, so just before coming on this call, I was actually in a faculty meeting and I was sitting next to this older woman and she was telling me like, I wish someone had told me that if I was like, such a serious dancer that I was going to destroy my knees. And now sometimes I have to sit down while I'm lecturing. And (laughs) that's what she was saying. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, it's like a kind of trade-off. And if you don't know that you're making that kind of trade-off, you don't know like the goods on the other side that are being compromised. I think that is really dangerous for an athlete. So I think it should be explicitly addressed. But second of all, I don't, think that the athlete is always well positioned to choose well for themselves. (laughs) Like, I mean, cause again, like 10 years ago, I would have been like, yeah, like I'm willing to do whatever it takes, like to be my best, not whatever it takes. Like I'm not going to do performance enhancing drugs or like things like that, but I would have pushed harder than I knew I could absorb the training for. Um, I just think it's important, you know, to have people, like for the athlete to have people in their lives speaking over them who are not within the sport. Cause you can be kind of um, myopic and focus on just the goods of the sport and forget that there are goods outside of it. So um, yeah, I want those conversations to be explicit. 
I want athletes to ask people from outside of the sport, like, you know, like have people speaking into their lives who are not just runners who, who can see that some of these things are dead ends. Um, but then in terms of like, okay, so you enter the sport and you're a young person and you have all the time to train in the world. Well, who are our superstars? Like, it seems like every few years there are people who enter the sport, they set themselves on fire with their training. And then a couple years later, they're gone, but there's always a fresh crop of those superstars coming in and out. And I think that is like something that I worry in terms about like, okay, if we're praising that kind of training practice to a certain degree and, and, always telling those stories without any caveats, like you create a false sense of like security in training in that way. And then a couple of years later they're gone, but then there are new ones coming in. And so I don't really know what the solution is because I don't think like this, the answer is don't tell their stories. I just wish there were more, uh, there was more caution tape around like that kind of outsized, um, training energy um and the kinds of the kinds of compromises that might be made in terms of health or in terms of like other constraints in your life like are you overstepping your friendships are you compromising family time and and things like that so that those things are taken seriously too do you think and this is probably just a guess but do you think that if we interviewed these fleeting professionals that might have a two or three year lifespan in the sport do you think if we interviewed them and asked them whether they think that their current situation is sustainable? Do you think that they would acknowledge that they're taking massive risks? Or do you think that they would say, I think that what I'm doing right now is going to be sustainable for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I wonder. And I do remember actually reading – so Jim Walmsley, early in, in those days, he's he, he said like, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. Like he was putting in big miles and it was like, I want to like do all these great things and then I'll be gone. But then as like his time in the sport, he started saying things about like doing things more sustainable, sustainably and like taking off seasons and things. So I think that perspective can sometimes shift. Like maybe it doesn't seem valuable at the time, but then later on you gain a kind of perspective in it. But I do wonder like, I do wonder if, if people think what they're doing is sustainable early on. I mean, maybe for some of them it is. And that's like kind of the appeal, right? You don't know if you're the exception. You're the one whose body will hold out if you, you know, week in and week out of doing, you know, 130, 140 miles. Like maybe you are the one who's going to be able to um, keep moving forward doing that. Another thing that you you wrote about in the article is that we should be concerned about these negative character traits in the athletic world because it's likely the case they extend into all these other areas of life. I thought that was really interesting. Can you explain why those character traits might not be contained to the athletic world? Yeah. Um, also, <laughs> right after I had written this, and it was sent to Iron Far, but wasn't published yet. I, like on ultra running Twitter, people were talking about the best rivalries. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is it. <laughs> I think um, I started that by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, it might've been. My bad. <laughs> 
so don't hate me. But yeah, the idea is this. Um, right. So oftentimes when people talk about particularly participating in sports they'll treat it as an unqualified good like the only things we get from athletics are like discipline and perseverance and we learn you know like how to be courageous and so forth but if we want to assume that those good traits that are reinforced in sport are going to cross over into the rest of our lives that there's this kind of translatability then why wouldn't we also assume that the bad traits are as well and so if you have a person participating in sport and particularly in high level sport or a sport that is subsuming a lot of their time, it's a kind of practice um, in being a certain kind of person. And so if you are practicing envy on a regular basis, like feeling bitter when others have it better, or you're practicing this kind of vainglory, this like preoccupation with what others see you as and wanting to have their attention. Like if these are the kinds of things that you're practicing, very likely they will cross over into the rest of your life. Um, like I would assume that they would. And if we're going to assume good qualities do, then we should probably assume bad ones do as well. And so the athlete, yeah, it could be the case that these are qualities that make you a more successful athlete. Like if you are envious, you are going to want to you know, win races such that someone else can't win the race. Or if you're proud or something like pride's greatest secret is that it's always under threat. Like it's always in this defense mode of having to be the best. And that's not something that's just going to be a habit that remains in the context of sport. It'll probably be something that informs your interactions with other people outside of sport. It could imperil your relationships with people. It can make you a bad citizen, a bad neighbor, like, and when your sporting life is done, like, what are you left with? Like maybe victory medals, but also like, where will the people be? Um, and so that's the concern, but I realize this is probably my least um, favored uh, position just because, I mean, that a lot of what we love about sport is like the bitterness, the rivalries, like the people getting after it who like don't want to lose, like it makes sport exciting. And also it is, in the same way that we don't wish injuries on athletes, like vices are something that's going to give the athlete a lower quality of life. I like to think of vices like cavities, like they ruin the integrity of the whole mouth, you know? Well, it's so funny because I was reading the article and, you know, I'm, I'm checking off the boxes like, oh yeah, totally agree with gossip, you know, totally agree with like <laughs> anonymity. And then you wrote about rooting for vice. Like, I was like, oh, I feel so seen there. Like I have totally partaked in all of that. Um, no, I have too though. That's the thing. It's like, we're all, we're all in this. I'm not above reproach. Well, I, lo I love what you said earlier in the conversation about seeming versus being and it made me wonder about this question. And it, it, I guess the question is, which part of the athlete should we focus on or prioritize more? What's driving them or what they're presenting to their peers? Because I, I can imagine a scenario where there's a, this athlete who, um, you know, they're, they're projecting all the right things before, during, and after competition. But if you like looked under the hood internally, they're motivated by envy, um, resentment, desire to prove others wrong, as opposed to more nobler objectives. So what, what are your thoughts there? 
Yeah. Um, I think that when we admire athletes, having that kind of distance can be a good thing because, right, admiration is an emotion that inclines us to imitate what we appreciably perceive. And so if you see someone as acting excellently and you assume it's for good reasons, you might imitate the, what you perceive to be their reasons instead of what's actually under the hood. Um, I do think that when you have interactions with athletes, it's really helpful to be a realist about the fact that these are not perfect people. Like, um, you know, you, you can't anticipate, like if you've ever met a person, you know, that people are flawed and athletes are people. And so just not putting them on a pedestal, like not having that awe as though they are like above reproach in every respect, because they're not going to be right. There are no perfect agents here, um, in, in ultra running or, you know, just walking about. And so, yeah, just like anticipating that there will be defects and not like being unmoored by seeing that someone doesn't have a perfect character. Do you think in general it's healthy and sustainable to suppress bad characteristics in all aspects of life? Like, is that something we should be striving for? Or can you envision this sort of hunger game scenario where it's good to have this like dedicated area of society to just let it all, let it all out? Yeah. So, okay. So if you were, um, I don't see any of it, like when you're developing a good character, it's not uh, suppression of badness. Um, that, so the way that you just frame that, um, is like the way that Hobbes would, um, Thomas Hobbes had this picture of humanity where you have this like savage core and then morality is like a thin veneer. It's like a social overlay. And like, if you peel back the goodness, then you're left with like this horrible, like savage creature. Right. And that's how like a lot of us think about character. Like, I, I don't know, I've been talking to my friends about this because like all the television shows that we watch, it seems like they're all Hobbes people. Um, like we have this idea that morality is just a, a, a coding, but it's not who we really are. The way that Aristotle describes virtue is that there are, so your emotions, you just want to direct them to the right objects. So think about this. Like, it's not like when you're in collective society, you are suppressing your anger. Anger is an emotion that is supposed to arise in situations of injustice, right? And so you want your anger, like it would be altogether wrong if you didn't experience anger when there was an injustice, but you want to experience it in the right ways at the right times and toward the right objects. And the same thing with like, um, like sadness, if you lose a loved one and you're not sad, you just suppress it. Well, that's altogether the wrong response, right? It's like a kind of obscuring of your vision. Like you want to see the world as it really is. And so when I talk about like transforming your character, it's not like, um, I don't want to talk about it as like this kind of thin veneer or like putting on a front. It's this kind of emotional re-education or ordering your emotions toward their proper objects so that you can feel the right things at the right times in the right ways. Um, and in, in that that is what virtue is, that kind of like fitting your emotions to what is actually around you to to have like moments where you're all, you go hunger games would be to like have like, it would be to see the world in, 
in a worse way. Does that make sense? Or like to see it less clearly. And I like the Hobbes reference too. I, for the record, I am a net positive. I'm an optimist about the human condition, but I do, I do, I do revert to Hobbes (laughs) from time to time. Um, Last question that I want to conclude on. um, And I think I want to talk about what's at stake here with this column that you wrote, because I think that over the next few years, what you wrote about is only going to become more relevant and we're probably going to grapple with tougher and tougher examples of how we've gone wrong, how we want to be right. So in, in your opinion, how does, how do these four, you know, poor characteristics, how do they ultimately negatively restructure the sport if we don't address them and codify what's right and, and practice uh, good behavior? I think in some ways, I'm really optimistic about the sport, um, just because you know how uh, you know how soap is self cleansing, so you don't have to wash soap; it's self cleansing. I feel like ultra running is similar in that, like, should we worry about vanity in a sport that checks your vanity at every turn? Like, if you actually do ultra marathons, they're so humbling; they make you so dependent on other people and like require you have a certain amount of humility to be able to complete the task and so forth that I think that we are in, at least we're on sturdier grounds than other sports are with respect to the kinds of vices that might proliferate in the sport. Um, I do think that like when I think about contracts and when I think about marketing around the sport, it does make me sad to think about like those kinds of the ways in which the image focus can undermine the goods of the sport. Right. So yeah, I mean, you're edified through the process of training, you're edified in your racing, and then you spend your time, you know, having to put a front online. And I worry about like, it just because like being another area of human life where we're like preoccupied with what other people see of us and prioritizing like the appearance of the athlete, like whether or not they're like beautiful and interesting instead of like whether they're a person of substance and character. So I think we just need to like find ways to reinforce the heart of the sport the goods that we really see as wanting to represent us. Like, and if that's good character, if that's people who persevere excellently and do so in a way that's above reproach, then like it needs to be reflected in our contracts. Uh, It needs to be reflected in to the sorts of like athletes that we seek out. And as fans, we have agency in like the kinds of athletes we draw attention to the ways in which we lift people up and and so it shouldn't just be like you know the best looking you know person who's like overshooting mileage like we could uh, you know like tell the stories of the people who have like have been really resilient or have come back from really hard things or uh had the opportunity to you know do something great or invest in a community like telling those stories i think would be a really valuable way to be a fan Sabrina, this has been an awesome conversation. So grateful to have you on the show and to just further provide these thought-provoking questions for the audience to consider. We'll make sure to link to your column in the show notes, all of your social media in the show notes. Um, Do you have any other final thoughts that you want to leave listeners with before we go? 
No, this has been great and keep up the great work. I listened to so many of your episodes and, and I've just loved the storytelling and I think that you're really hospitable to like storytelling in the sport. So just keep it up. Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsor discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.